When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Mayday, Mayday edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined as ever by Anna Shemansky. Hello. Hi, Anna. And by Jordan Weissman of Slate. Hello. And I have to say that up until the actual UK election, my general feeling coming into this week was... This is the least important election of my lifetime. It's not going to make any difference to Brexit. There's no point in talking about it. The only way we're ever going to talk about it is if there's something completely insane happens. So I thought to myself, let's talk about Spanish banking and how like there's a huge banking crisis going on in Southern Europe. And let's talk about sexy things like the Qatari royal family paying a billion dollar ransom and these kind of things. And then maybe we'll... talk about activist investing or something like that. But no. No, but, but no. no. <laughs> we, we, British we, we voters are, strike again. <laughs> we are going to talk about the UK election because the UK election was bonkers. bonkers. So, so there's a great quote from this Belgian, uh, from this like Eurocrat who got interviewed by the Times. He's like, I thought the Belgians invented surrealism. <laughs> <laughs> so the Belgians, I mean, this is the wonderful thing, right? The Belgians really did invent the idea of a country without a government. They they managed to go. They they <laughs> managed to go over a year without having a government. Uh, not that long ago, and it is increasingly looking as though the only way that Britain is going to be able to move forward is by not having a government. It's just a shit show over there. And the problem is that the Belgians are boring enough to be able to run their country without a government. The Brits are not. No, yeah. that we're just not that competent. <laughs> it's- it's not your strong. No, no. Uh, you muddle along well but enough. Yes. But so okay. So can, can we can we go through exactly what the state of play is at this point? Okay. Theresa so, May has lost her majority after. Okay. Well, let's let's rewind yeah. a little bit because it's important to rewind here. Yeah. Let's let's rewind to 2015. Okay. Where you have. Prime Minister David Cameron with a small majority. He gets reelected with a small majority in, in the lower house, which is the important one. And in order to placate his right wing, and also because he is a complete moron, he decides to make the single worst political decision in the entire history of the world, which is to call this stupid Brexit referendum. And we had a whole issue about that. And... Um, as we all know, the Brexit referendum went 
tits up, I believe is the technical term. Yes. yes. And um, and so he wound up resigning because obviously he completely miserably failed. And the um, lesson which his successor, Theresa May, drew was to never call an election which, you, you know, you could lose and you don't need to have. Yeah, it's like you never ask a question you don't already know the answer to, except the problem is she thought she knew the answer. So, this so, this is, so everyone started telling her when she becomes prime minister, obviously she's unelected because she's just stepped into the recently departed David Cameron's shoes. And everyone says, well, are you going to call an election to give yourself a mandate? And she's like, no, that's ridiculous. Of course, I'm not going to call an election. Of course, I'm not going to call an election until one day. She wakes up and sees an opinion poll saying that if she called an election, her tiny little majority would become a massive majority. Instead of having a majority of like five, she would have a majority of 100. And she's and she is very excited about this because that way she has a mandate and she can barge through with her hard Brexit and she doesn't need to worry about annoying right wingers or left wingers in her own party and all of this kind of thing. So in a fit, fit of like misguided optimism, mm-hmm. Theresa May goes and calls an election. Yep. And her and when she calls the election, according to the opinion polls, her lead over the Labour Party is bigger than the entire vote for the Labour Party. Yes. 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 <laughs> um, what Theresa May doesn't realize is that Theresa May is the world's worst election campaigner, that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, for all that he's an unreconstructed beardy lefty, is a really good campaigner. I wouldn't say he's a good campaigner. I'd say he's he is much he's better than she is, and he has his he has people who like him. He has young he has a he has a constituency, which she does not seem to have. And and he does bring out young people's votes in actually much the same way that Bernie Sanders did. Um and you know, he he manages to increase the size of the electorate. The turnout was really big. My favorite re- result in this election was Canterbury, which has been a safe Tory seat since like the 19th century and is like the most conservative, boring, Tory, Kentish like town you can possibly imagine. Swung to Labour this this election, basically on the strength of the fact that it has a bunch of university students who don't normally bother to vote, but they all came out and voted. So So now we've arrived at this point where Theresa May no longer has a majority by herself. So she has to create a sort of she has to create a coalition government. And apparently that's going to hinge on you said it's the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland Correct. are going to be the key to the yes. UK government. Yes. We have reached a point where the Protestants of Northern Ireland hold the, the future of the UK. And, 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 and the crazy ones. So <laughs> yes. I mean it's not. Um yeah, they're they're these are the like spiritual descendants of Ian Paisley, who um, was famous mainly for just saying, Ulster says no, over and over again. <laughs> and no matter what the question was, the answer was always, Ulster says no. Um, and so these guys, these guys are interesting because, of course, Northern Ireland has the UK's only land border with the European nation. Yeah. Uh, with an EU nation. And when I say it's a land border, I mean, it's a land border in much the same way that it, there's a land border between Belgium and Luxembourg. It's yeah. an invisible line, which people walk, wander across back and forth all the time. You know, they'll live in one country, they'll work in another, they'll send their school, get kids to school in one, they'll go to the shops in another. And the problem with, with this land border is that Theresa May has promised that she's going to crack down on immigration. Yeah. And, of course, the Republic of Ireland 
has open borders with the rest of Europe. Anyone from Poland or France or Spain can just go to Republic of Ireland, no problem. They can then wander across the border to Northern Ireland, no problem, because it's an invisible border with no border controls. And once you're in Northern Ireland, you're in the UK, and there's no border control stopping you going right. into the rest of the country. Yeah, and I, I think that one of the reasons this is so important, or the reason this is so important, is that the the Northern Irish Peace Accords, all of that was based, essentially, or largely based on some amount of free movement there. So that that's... that's it's w- absolutely key yes, to and a peaceful Northern Ireland. Yeah. And they're also not in favor of exiting the customs union, which is really significant. If we're talking about what this means for a harder or softer Brexit, so this is so this is why this is our like desperate attempt to shoehorn the British election into slate money. I'm trying. Is, yeah, we'll <laughs> make an effort here, sort of. <laughs> is is that it does have important implications for Brexit because what Theresa May wanted was a mandate for what's known as a hard Brexit. She has decided that, well, what she wanted late last week was. This hard Brexit where they would leave the single market, leave the customs union, leave the EEA, the European Economic Area, um, put up like hard immigration walls and and basically just be very extreme. And she wanted a, 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 an electoral mandate to do that. She clearly failed to get that electoral mandate. And even the DUP, who are pretty hard Brexit and kind of crazy conservatives, are not that extreme. And it looks now that the ability of the minority Tory government, because that's probably what we're going to wind up with, to get, you know, to to push through a hard Brexit through Parliament, to push through the great, great repeal bill where they need to repeal all of the laws which gave all of the powers to Europe and that kind of stuff, that's severely diminished. And what you might wind up with, especially um, if you have a slightly more moderate Tory leader, which is entirely possible um is is a you know a second look at the negotiating strategy and maybe a softer brexit and maybe possibly we stay in the customs union or the single market or something like that so i mean i think part of the issue here is also just like theresa may was going for a hard brexit because it's not clear she can negotiate anything else if if immigration isn't on the table. And that's really the th- – I mean during this election, even Corbyn was saying we're going to reduce immigration. And that's I think part of the strange thing about this election is that Labor successfully took Brexit off the table by saying, yeah, we're – or a lot of Brexit off the table by saying, OK, yeah, we're going to reduce immigration. We're going to take control of our borders and we're going to go through with it in some respect, but not the crazy deal that the conservatives are contemplating without ever really getting too deep into what their better deal would be. And so I think, you know, it's not as long as you're saying we're taking a, we're, we're going to close our borders. It's not clear the European Union will give you any kind of a deal that lets you stay in the customs union, will let you. But isn't that the whole point of yeah. the, the yeah. Irish thing, though, that maybe now yeah. the borders aren't going to be so closed? Exactly. That, I mean, I may essentially part of what she's been criticized for is only focusing on Brexit, whereas the. Labor was essentially focusing on economic policies that really appealed to people. Well, well, so, May has been criticized for two things. Many things. Like, yeah. like, but, but one of them is only focusing on Brexit, and the other one is saying absolutely nothing about what her Brexit policy was. Right. She kept on saying, I'm going to announce a Brexit policy, and then she never did. Yes. And just in saying things like, you know, no deal is better than a bad deal. And, and you're like, what she, does she, that she, mean? The only thing, like, 
this is the woman who famously, when she was running for the Tory party leadership, just kept on repeating Brexit means Brexit like some kind of robot. <laughs> like and, no one yeah. and then in this election campaign, she would just repeat strong and stable like some kind of robot. And no one knew what that meant either. But that's because no one in Britain has a plan. Like, no, there's really no, nobody exactly. in anywhere because there's nobody thought this would happen. Nobody thought it happened, no and it's can, not even possible. Like, yeah. there's no, literally exactly. no way you can negotiate a deal of this magnitude in the amount of time they have available. It is not possible. Yeah, and, why, and this is why I ultimately think this could be troublesome for the British economy because this just puts even more uncertainty in terms of, I think right now, investors don't entirely know how to read this. Because on the one hand, you can say, well, okay, maybe it's going to lead to a softer Brexit, and that could potentially be positive. But then it could also just lead to, we're going to have another election, and then there's going to be more instability. I mean, there really could be, there's a real, real possibility of another election in August, Yeah, if Theresa May can't manage to cobble together the votes for confidence. And, And right now, I mean, you're seeing weakness you know, a bit of weakness in the pound, but in terms of the, you know, in, in terms of the, you know, stock market, it's it's a little split between like your your blue chips, which are more exporters, which actually are up because it's the idea that if you have a weaker pound, that's you know, it'll it'll make them more competitive. But then your kind of mid caps that are all focused on the domestic economy are all down. So it, it, everything's just so, all so over the place. So that's bad. And then also, yeah, no one knows who the next prime minister is going no. to be. No. And what, that, makes think Boris? Big, that makes a big difference. I'm, I'm, open, could, for, I'm open The return Boris. of Boris. It really, uh, could, it really could, be. could be. I mean, I hate to say this, but it really could be Boris well, Johnson. So because this was such a, like, this was an election that was fought so much on domestic policy and, like, the fact that Theresa May, I mean, I think we should talk about the dementia tax. We have we to talk, talk about, about the dementia, dementia tax. tax. But, you know, Boris Johnson at least has some ability to connect for better or worse with his fellow Brits and make crazy British po- uh, like Tory policy sound palatable to people, which Theresa May completely failed on. So although so part of it and this comes back to Berger, I guess, talk about the dementia tax is that Theresa May did lose some of the older vote because essentially their party platform and no one knows seems to know why this happened, but their party platform included this provision that said that if you had long-term care from the NHS, like you were suffering from dementia or you had some uh, some critical illness in your old age and you had to have home care, it would be paid for by essentially selling off your assets after, with, you, died. A- after you died. Including and then, your house. Including yes. your house. They would sell off your family home and your family could keep like 100,000 pounds worth and everything else above that would go to the government. And so, you know, this, I mean, talk about a fucking death tax, like the yes. least popular thing. And it came out came out and no one seemed to understand how it had gotten to platform. No one took responsibility for it. It was like someone saw a turd in the punch bowl and everyone was like, who laid the turd? And no one had, would take it. Like, it was this insane thing. And then even like the conservative papers went nuts about it. Like, was it the Evening Standard or the Daily Mail coined the phrase dementia tax? Mm-hmm. So they and all the old voters said, hey, this is not in our interest. So she, they managed to alienate even some of their core. Well, well they, did, they did U-turn on it. Yes. Yeah. But it was but that made it even late. worse. Yeah. It was because then she, was, she wouldn't admit that she, she did a U-turn. She she yeah, put a cap exactly. on it and then said, oh, it's not different at all. And you're like, it's entirely different. But yeah, but this is the other thing. She kept on saying strong and stable. And then she did about seven different U-turns <laughs> over the course of six weeks. Weak and flimsy. Like, there's, was nothing, a- there's nothing strong. As-. She even came out in her um, victory speech after she got reelected in her, uh, her own constituency and said, what we really need now is a period of stability. It's like, well, you don't get a stability 
period of stability by losing your majority but, in parliament. So, so I, I think there's one um, parallel to the U.S. election in, in some ways that we just went through, which is that this is a vote with profound consequences for the future of uh, Great Britain. Uh, it throws so much into chaos, uh, much as our own decision to vote for Donald Trump threw everything into fucking chaos. But a lot of it hinges on the personal incompetence and personality of the of one of the candidates. And so it's a little bit tough to suss out exactly right. what all this means. Exactly. exactly. What? Because I, I think at the end of the day, the UK is still not a far left electorate. I mean, I, I don't think that this election suggests that all of a sudden the, no. the population's well, it's, politics it, have massively I mean, p- shifted. Part of the problem with Brexit is that it's not really a left-right issue. So what you don't see in this result is like a big national swing, either away from the Tories or towards the Tories. What you see is a bunch of incredibly idiosyncratic local results in Scotland, in Northern Ireland. You saw a big victory for Sinn Féin, weirdly. Sinn Féin has a record seven seats, which they're not going to take in Parliament. And that really alters the parliamentary math because those seven MPs don't turn up and don't vote. There's a bunch of bifurcation, I would say. The one the one thing which you see in both Northern Ireland and in England is that they've both become two-party states for the first time in a long time. In in England, it's just the Tories and Labour. In Northern Ireland, it's just the DUP and Sinn Féin. Um, and Scotland is still mostly SNP, but you have Labour and the Tories coming back. It's, you know, that's the last three-party country. There's a big reworking of the political landscape and no one know, and no one everyone knows that it's a waypoint to somewhere but just no one knows no what one can see is. where we're, where yes. we're going and how this affects all policy not just brexit but also domestic policy anything moving forward it does seem that the you know demographically if you want to look at what do people under the age of 40 believe they are moving to the left generally and they like the idea of free university and they like the idea of nationalizing the railways and they like the idea of raising taxes and they like the idea of ending austerity and that could be a big move in the meantime we get prime minister boris johnson hopefully (laughs) don't don't even joke about that (laughs) although yeah i pray this would be so bad I i mean it is actually i mean just to wrap this up it is still possible we could wind up with prime minister jeremy corbyn i mean anything is possible right now Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Jordan. Yeah. Talking about European countries which are being fucked by <laughs> European policies. Yeah. Um, this is something we've been kind of hinting at for a long time, right? Is is the or talking around for a long time or mentioning en passant is this idea that there's a major banking crisis in Southern Europe. Yep. And you can't just close your eyes and hope it'll go away. No, no. And so it, we had a little flare-up this week. Um, a European banking regulator essentially declared that a Spanish bank, Banco Popular, uh, was failing. And they actually successfully wound it down and sold it off to Santander. In a way, um, you know, th- this is 
a weird way sort of a story of a success of uh, European banking regulation post-crisis in the sense that they saw trouble. They came down. They said, OK, you're experiencing a bank run. We don't want this to get out of control. And we're going to uh, just send you off to a larger, more stable institution, sort of the way I, in my mind, the way I'm comparing this is sort of what the U.S. did with uh, Bear Stearns and J.P. Morgan in a way. They sold it essentially for a nominal sum so that they would take on I, I think it's liabilities. closer to what they did with Washington Mutual. Okay. Um, you know, you, and, and it's not just that they were having liquidity issues in the bank run. They were determined to be insolvent. Yeah. And so what they did is they wiped out all of the stock. They wiped out yeah. some of the junior bondholders and they said – we are just going to take your assets and hand them over in much the same way that the U.S. did when they sold all of Washington yeah. Mutual. Yeah, although this, oh, yeah. this really is significant because this is an example of the new banking regulations working exactly as they're supposed to. Yeah. And, and the other thing and that I think And they've done is, it before in Portugal, but this is much yeah, bigger Yeah, this is that. much bigger. And it's also really significant because there has been no contagion. Yeah. And that's exactly what you're supposed to although, do. And was, this is... And and this they, is yeah. And one of the great things about this is that... It shows what all of us kind of suspected, but it's always good to have it a, a real-life proof, which is that if a bank becomes insolvent when there isn't a major crisis going on, you can resolve that bank without creating a crisis. No, I mean, this is the whole point. If you look at the BRRD and you have... Um, in Article 32.4, you have precautionary recapitalization. Okay, right. Start, start again. <laughs> <laughs> So the BRRD, which is the Banking Resolution and Recovery Directive that was established after the banking crisis, which essentially sets up all of these regulations for how you're going to deal with banks. And, and there are many different ways of how you deal with them, depending on whether they are actually insolvent or not insolvent. But in one instance, you know, this this is a little different because what we've seen in Italy is actually this being used with like Monte de Paschi to do precautionary recapitalizations, yeah. which is exactly this idea of trying to come in before everything is entirely falling apart, inject cash and then kind of stabilize. Wait, the okay, so, so, let's, so let's be let's take this um, yeah. one at a time because it's a very interesting difference. In Italy, we've got this big bank, very old bank, Monte de Paschi, which is has not been resolved in this way has not been sold off the junior bondholders have not been wiped out the bank still exists it's kind of staggering on somehow the government is trying to inject new money into it to keep it going it's getting bailed right but, part, and it's, but it and is it's a mess right. whereas with popular there's no injection of new money you just wipe out a whole bunch right. of bondholders you sell it all off to Santander it's much cleaner so the question i have for you anna is why are the Italians not doing the clean thing and just because doing a popular to Monte de Paschi? So a lot of the bond, junior bonds that are held in a lot of these failing Italian banks are held by retail investors. A lot of them were sold essentially to mom and pop investors. So the idea of wiping out, that is almost akin to wiping out depositors. It's a big political deal. And actually, part of the rescue plan that has been developed for MPS has actually involved some of those bondholders are in theory going to be turned into equity. But then what's going to happen is that then that equity is going to be swapped for a senior bond instrument. So that's been part of the rescue of the idea of how they are trying yeah. to deal and with this. And it always comes down to this, which is like, who owns the various tiers of capital? Like, depositors 
are generally protected unless you have a major, major bank collapse. You try as hard as you can to protect de- depositors as much as you can, certainly small depositors. Um, not because they necessarily have any particular legal seniority, but just because they are the little guy and everyone wants to protect the little guy. And this is, you know, why the Argentina bankruptcy was such a big deal in uh, Italy. It wasn't that Italy, Italian institutions had a bunch of Argentine bonds. It's because Italian individuals had a bunch of Argentine bonds. I, I think there's also something to be said for protecting the little guy. I mean, that is the core of having the FDIC, yeah. for instance, the US, is that it makes the banking system more stable when small depositors who are the crux of, you know, of, right. of, no, of small... Yeah, so, entirely. Like, this is, yeah, this I mean, is entirely why yeah. we, we have established the these new banking regulations to create capital buffers. So not only do we not need to inject state aid, but then on top of that, you are protecting depositors. Because what has happened with Popular is that the additional tier one capital, which is like the Cocos, the contingent convertibles, those were wiped out. And then I think a bit of the, I think the tier two was also wiped out. But again, your senior bondholders are safe. Your depositors are safe. And and, I guess what my point is, is that this is fine in theory. And it's fine in the US where depositors aren't really bondholders and they're protected by the FDIC. And it's fine in Spain where, you know, there there aren't any like little guys who own Cocos. But it's, but in that's more of a sort of coincidence that it just so happens that the people with the riskiest securities are also institutional investors who can afford to take the loss. Um, in an event, if you have a bank like you, like Monte de Pasqui, where the people with the riskiest securities are, are little guys, then suddenly this beautiful system where, where you just wipe out the riskiest securities doesn't work anymore. It only works if you manage to place those securities with institutions who can take the loss. Yeah, I, I think um, also you're you know you're talking about how this could work. You know, something like this can work in the U.S. I think actually, I think what just happened with Banco Popular shows kind of the flaws in the U.S. system to some degree that we've created. Banco Popular has been a very smooth process where they just kind of, again, sold it off to another larger bank. Um, In the U.S., there's an immense allergy right now to creating even larger banks. And the system that we've created, our kind of our our version of resolution is aimed at taking these institutions through bankruptcy, uh, identifying them ahead of time like Europe did with this bank, but saying, OK, we're just going to wind you down in the courts, but just sort of in an expedited I, way. I, I feel that's not really true or it's true only for the four biggest banks. But that, that, I, but that I, think, is... I think that any bank which isn't Chase or JP Morgan or Bank of America or Wells Fargo can quite easily be resolved by selling it to one of those that, four. That's true. Uh, yeah, and that's and Banco Popular, we should say, is small enough that it it is something that could actually be kind of taken care of probably by the FDIC in the U.S. It, like in a more traditional like, way. Spain couldn't have done this with Santander. No, no, no. you know. Um, and this actually works well for Santander because it's going to help them increase market share with small and medium enterprises. <laughs> so I want to zoom out for a second though and kind of talk about kind of the bigger picture of what's going on with these banks. Why I think there's that you know there's there's real world implications. You can talk about how this shows that the um, you know. The financial regulatory system they put in place is working or not working. But in the end, like you said, Felix, there is this raging banking crisis still going on in Southern Europe. And Europe is very – Europe, all business investment, you know, their, their, their economy runs on bank lending far more than the U.S. does, right? In the U.S., we have a lot – we have very active bond markets. In Europe, they rely on banks to lend. And banks aren't lending in Europe partly because of this crisis. And you can look at the data. You can look at the lending. You know, you can look at loan growth or how it actually declined for a while. And this is 
just this is hampering a just you know a, a huge part of the world economy. And the fact that they haven't been able to put out this fire is is just it's one of the kind of quieter. I don't know, crises that's still lingering from So certainly bank lending in, in Spain and Italy and Portugal is way below what you would consider to be healthy. Um, but then again, in a weird way, it always has been that even when it was high in Spain, I mean, Italy is a different thing, but even when it was high in Spain, it was mostly the wrong kind of bank lending. Right, I think it was it's a, real estate. I think it's important to remember why Banco Popular got into trouble. And it's because they essentially got into the real estate market at the worst time. They were really late to get in. So they got the they had the riskiest assets. Um, but yeah, the, the real estate crash and the 2009 crisis, you know, has not been resolved in Spain and or even in Italy. That overhang is there. The one thing that has happened since then, which is good news, and I think we're seeing this week with Popular, is that at one point it was felt that you couldn't, like back in the worst days of 2009, 2010, 2011, it was felt you couldn't wipe out those bondholders, you know, many of whom, let's be frank about this, a German, yeah. um, because, you know, the Germans would be up in arms about it and and they would cause all manner of chaos. The Germans have not said a peep about this. It's We have managed to wipe out the bondholders without any real negative repercussions, in large part because the financial asset markets, the bond market and the stock market, are both doing so well that you can take those losses now. Yeah. And and again, it's also I do think people understand, especially if you're buying additional tier one capital, that you are getting a significantly higher coupon because you are taking on significantly higher risk. So I think so long as the stock market remains high, so long as bonds remain broadly healthy, um, so long as you don't have another major Europe-wide crisis, it seems like we can weather the European banking crisis without it turning macro and bringing the entire continent down. Well, it, it's not going to bring it down in like a you know a flash. It's not going to be a, a you know a, like volcanic. But I mean, it's it's still it's a drag. It's it is a drag. Yeah, it it's it's still weighing on the economy, and you know people. You see these optimistic stories about like what's going on in Spain right now. Oh, they're writing their economy. I saw someone say Spanish unemployment is coming down from disastrous levels, right? So I went and double checked. I was like, I thought it was still pretty high. Yeah, it's come down from about twenty six percent to eighteen percent. I mean, we're talking about countries that by and if 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 the U.S. were in this state that Spain is, it would be considered a a historical crisis. It would be people would be freaking the hell out. It never got as bad in the U.S. during the Great Recession as it currently is in Spain. And this is one of the factors that is still dragging out. And so I just don't, I don't know how you how, how do you lance this boil? How do you just fix it once? Well, is well, there a the, way to right well, now- the, the way you do it ultimately over the long term is through, you know, like tying into the first segment here, labor mobility in Europe. That the if there aren't a lot of jobs in Spain, then the Spaniards wind up going to find work in Germany. That takes a very long time, and it doesn't solve the problem in Spain. But that is part of how the European Union is meant to work. And where they really ought to be finding work is in the UK, because the UK is quite good at creating jobs for lots of people from lots of nationalities. And we love the Romanians who come in and bash terrorists over the head with chairs from their like you know when they went from their stall in borough market and if the uk puts up these walls and doesn't absorb those 
people who need jobs. That's bad for all of Europe. Especially because the UK has an aging population and really needs workers. Exactly. Okay, so now we're going to move even further east. We, 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 started, we started on the Atlantic, on the east coast of the Atlantic, but now we're going to move over to the Middle East. Yes, so we are going to move to Qatar. Qatar. <laughs> Qatar. People yes, love Qatar, yes, Qatar. So, so it's one of those... It's, so that's the Do- one where Doha is the capital. Yes. Doha is famous for being a world trade organization negotiating around and also basically not having any oil? No. So um, Qatar is gas. Yeah. Right. yeah it's, they're, the they're, it's the world's largest, largest um, exporter. exporter. Yeah, exactly. So I think this this row between uh, the Saudis and their Gulf Coast allies and um, Qatar has really confused a lot of people because they're like, I don't understand. They're all Sunnis. <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> but But the issue is that Apparently, you know, Qatar has been kind of a bit of a maverick nation in the region for a while in the sense that they've they've often been known to kind of play both sides in conflicts. And they've also um, Al Jazeera is there and Al Jazeera will sometimes be critical of a number of the other dynasties kind of in the region, but not the Altani dynasty in Qatar. So that and, and essentially it's just the Saudis think that uh, Qatar doesn't always kind of play by the rules that they're supposed to. But Qatar is it has a big US military base it does have al jazeera which is a you know it's an instrument of soft power but it's a genuinely respectable news organization um doha is generally considered to be a perfectly pleasant place it's it's not like unless you have, you're one of the many many migrant workers yeah <laughs> but there's still like it's not like saudi arabia where like women aren't allowed to drive and you have these police roaming the streets whipping you if you don't go to yeah it, it, it is a wahhabi i mean like they're they're i mean they're it qatar is actually fascinating because most the vast majority of the population are foreign nationals and migrant workers. There's yeah. a very small percentage of the population who are actually Qataris, which is actually interesting because this is a side note, but if this lasts for a significant amount of time, this could actually have ramifications in th- Southeast Asia. Okay, so two questions. We have to like rewind. Yes, well, <laughs> Number one, what is this? What what have the Saudis yes, and the so, rest of the sorry. Gulf Council okay. announced? So essentially, they cut off diplomatic ties um, with Qatar, and they also cut off all land, sea, and air transit, which is actually really significant for the airways, and also because Qatar imports their food and essentially everything. So this is a major blockade yes. of it's another a big deal. country, and one which it looks like the president of the United States is okay with. What was the proximate cause of this? So Russian one of one, yeah, <laughs> maybe potentially. So one of the issues is that um, the Saudis have really pointed to is this idea that Qatar has been financing extremism, and specifically, what people think is this announcement of this one potentially one billion dollar payment to gain the release of, I believe, 26 Qatari um, hostages, essentially, that were kidnapped. And the payment appears to mostly have gone to Iran. It's it's, it's a bit complicated in terms of what actually happened. But basically, you had this Qatari group that were going into southern Iraq. They were then taken by these Iranian-backed militias. Then the money that came in both went to these militias. It went to some Iranian officials. It was then later also moved to these um, this Al Qaeda affiliate that then released a different amount, different hostages. But the point that Saudis and their allies are really angry about, frankly, is the fact that it looks like this was a way to funnel money to Iran. And 
In terms of ransom payments, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but a billion dollars is a large it's ransom It's a lot of payment. money. Yeah. And I think that's why it, it also feeds into this larger critique that, again, the Saudis have, which is that it seems as though it's not that this was necessarily that the Qataris were just trying to help the, the Iranians, but it, it's a way for them to essentially fund a lot of these extremist groups. So the question which I have is, number one, are you saying that the Qataris basically used the ransom as an excuse to do no, something it's... which they kind of wanted to do anyway? Or because France makes a lot of ransom payments to the Islamic State, as do various other European countries, it's not like every ransom payment is something you do because you want to No, do it's it. less that they were using it as an excuse. It's more that it looks like they will essentially pay anyone. And I think that's the real critique. So, which brings me to yes. what the, the thing which I'm really interested in about this, which is the flow of ransom payments into terrorist organizations, which has been going on for many years now and is a really large amount of money. It is. I mean, I, I granted. Now, kidnapping is not the major source of funding for most of the for the some of the Iranian backed militias. It's one of the bigger sources of funding. But for a, a number of others, it's not necessarily. But having said that, it is interesting to look at who pays ransom and who doesn't. And I think this is interesting because the U.S. and the U.K. are essentially two of the only countries that really just say we will never pay. And and the result is that their hostages get killed a lot more often. Yes. And, and this becomes a, just a significant ethical issue where you go, OK, you know, there is no evidence to suggest that the other European hostages that do pay, it's not that they're targeted more because they pay. And again, you are having these, again, U.S. hostages being killed. But then the other argument is, OK, but then if you pay, you are essentially funding terrorists. And I don't know where to come down in that argument. It's a really difficult question. Maybe you pay a couple million bucks, but you don't pay a billion. billion? Bucks. Yes. Maybe maybe like the re the minute you start getting a B on there, it starts st well, stopping being so like a ransom payment and start starting being something bigger. I do want to just jump in here randomly because this is my favorite story, um, and mention my favorite ra ransom payment. So you know how um, we talk about a very large sum of money often as a king's ransom. Yeah. Um, this is actually a genuinely factual historical story, is that King John II of France was captured by the English in the early 14th century and was ransomed back to France for literally a king's ransom. Um, <laughs> this is, I think, 1340, around there. And this payment, this ransom payment, was so enormous that it almost single-handedly was responsible for the fact that Britain wound up being a much more successful nation over the following few hundred years. So you're saying kidnapping France. pays. <laughs> kidnapping really, really did pay for, for, for well, the English. So I have, like, how much of this is then, because it seems like this whole kidnapping incident and the, and the ransom, it's sort of a gray area for how badly Qatar wanted to avoid it or, or how willingly they went along with it. How much of it was just like they didn't really negotiate the price? They were just like, okay, a billion dollars, that's going to people we want to support anyway. Was, is that sort of the theory there? I mean, it just seems like this wasn't, I mean, it, it's very complicated because it was also related to like moving people between, in Syria, you had a certain number of like people in, in rebel held towns and government held towns and they were able to swap them as part of this as well. So it invited in. 
it involves a lot of things. So it's very complicated to say. So honestly, it was a what, complex negotiation with a lot of moving parts. It wasn't just a someone came along with a yeah. bill for a billion bucks. No, exactly. Like, but <laughs> exactly. But it again, it's more. I think just this issue of again, the Qataris kind of not sticking to the party line. Yeah, they they will negotiate and work with parties. They've also. I mean, there, there's also concerns because they they are supported the Muslim Brotherhood, which the Saudis really are opposed to, yeah. as well as um, Hamas, Hamas is, and, yeah. and then in Hezbollah, which was also connected with this. So it really is an example, again, of the Qataris have kind of existed in this like middle space. And they've sometimes portrayed themselves as like, you know, oh, like, look, we can negotiate. But some of the other regional powers more are acting as though they're taking advantage. And frankly, this is just another example of in this region where you you just have this essentially battle between the the Saudis and and Iran. And they and this is to me just, if anything, just another example of a kind of proxy of that larger yeah. issue. And we sh- I should say the just to explain my Russian hackers reference earlier. Yeah, so-, so there's this other weird subplot here that is almost unbelievable. But so basically there was a news story on state. There was a state news story uh, that came up that quoted the Qatari leader basically praising Israel's leaders and I believe also Iran's leaders. Um, and the Saudis took exception at this. They were very angry about it. And then later on it came out that, that maybe the story had been planted by Russian hackers as like a propaganda thing. But then the Saudis didn't believe that. And so that tells you, I mean, it's there's sensitivities here about actual, you know, financing. And then there's just straightforward political bickering as well. Right. And that's I, so there are two parts of this. But it goes, I think, further to your point is that there's a sort of great game going on and the Saudis are very sensitive. Exactly. To it. This I, I think the the payment, this one billion dollar payment was like the final straw, but it's a part of a much, much larger issue. Yeah. And then, of course, you have Donald Trump. Tweeting. Yeah. And so basically after all this happened, Donald Trump jumped in and started tweeting about how great it was that Saudi Arabia had fingered Qatar about this. And he sort of tried to take credit for the whole thing because of his his, uh, you know, his trip out there. He did a little sword dance and touched the orb. Um, But it's, you know, what one person said to me who had spent a lot of time in Qatar is that they were just obviously just astounded by this, A, because the U.S. has its CENTCOM base on Qatar. We have 11,000 troops mm-hmm. there. This is not good for us that this is happening. But also, this is typically the kind of thing that's kind of handled in the family in the Gulf, that like these kinds of conflicts break out and they, they deal with them. But once the U.S. president gets involved, that means all of a sudden all hell fucking breaks loose. And that's sort of now why this has become gone from an interesting and weird and possibly bad story to an you know, international crisis that sort of escalated. Just, yeah. Let's just let's just hope he doesn't tweet about Yemen. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay. Um, 
let's have a numbers round because I I have so many different numbers to choose from this week. I feel that I'm going to let you guys go first because maybe some of them are going to be mine. Um, I I think I'm actually going to switch my number. You're going to switch (laughs) at the last minute. (laughs) Okay, because when we were talking about banks, I'd wanted to talk about Novabanco in Portugal and didn't get a chance to. So I think I'm going to talk about it now. Okay. Okay. What's your Portuguese bank? So I actually, this is kind of fascinating. So Lone Star Capital. Wait, you need a number. It's one billion. Sorry. Oh, it's another. So it's another one billion. It's, it, it's the one billion dollar number, but it's not a Qatari ransom. No, it is not a Qatari ransom payment. Is in fact a private equity payment to um, essentially take over uh, Novo Banco. But the the reason I think this is fascinating is what they're essentially they're they're doing is upending the cap structure, which. I find fascinating. So essentially... All right. For those of you who are listening and going, we have no idea what Anna is talking about. I promise there's going to be easier numbers to understand My in numbers a minute. are really easy. But this Jordan, is really interesting. So, but we, just just bear with us here and we will get through the capital structure of Novo Banco. So Novo Banco was, again, this was the good bank that was created out of the, the last... Portuguese. I'm Anna really excited. Whacked her mic. Anna is so excited about Novo Banco. Novo Banco's She's actually destroying the studio. <laughs> so, so basically, okay. So, as part of this deal, what's going to happen is essentially Lone Star is saying they're going to inject a billion dollars of capital. But part of this is that then they're making these senior bondholders swap their instruments for these higher risk instruments. But then the twenty five percent of the of the bank that's still held essentially by the government is not going to be touched. So the equity holders are there in that restructuring senior to the senior bondholders. Boom, boom, boom. Black is is white, night is day. (laughs) Shit, man. So this is, no, I mean, so Anna and I I are cap structure nerds. I know you are. (laughs) And the way that these things always work is you try and find the point of leverage. And mostly the point of leverage is somewhere on the cap structure where the people below you get shafted and the people above you don't get touched. Um, But that's not always the point of leverage. Sometimes the point of leverage is just the stock. If you buy enough stock, you can control stuff. And that seems to be what's going on here. Yes, this is true. But I also think this is a kind of domestic foreign issue as well, because you also have, have larger issues with Portuguese banks being sold by potentially discriminating against uh, foreign investors in favor of domestic investors, so that's a larger issue. But so yeah, yes. if you wanna if you wanna start like finding interesting financial engineering opportunities, you team up with Lone Star Capital and start buying Portuguese banks. Jordan, what's your number? Two hundred and thirty-three. Uh, that's the number of House Republicans who voted for the Choice Act. Uh, hasn't gotten a lot of attention this week because of other things going on in Washington, a certain former FBI director testifying among them. But the Choice Act would essentially undo the vast majority of the important parts of Dodd-Frank. It would vastly weaken the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It would gut, it would eliminate the Volcker Rule. I mean, just all sorts of things. It's, it's just this repository of bad financial regulatory ideas that uh, has sort of come together over the years on the Republican side. And even though it looks like it's probably dead on arrival in the Senate, there are pieces so of it. So it passed that, the House. It passed the House it, with one, one Republican voted against it. 233 voted for it. No Democrats. Pieces of it could potentially make it through the Senate, through the reconciliation process. But really, I'm sharing this number just to give you, um, to share a quote, because it gives you a sense of sort of the 
derangement that has taken hold on uh, one side of the aisle and the way they've sort of, um, as Mike Conskall uh, noted in the New York Times, just rewritten the financial crisis. Jeb Henserling, who's sort of the brain behind this bill, uh, was asked about Too Big to Fail and the Lehman bankruptcy or, or Lehman crash. And he said, although it was painful and somewhat chaotic, in many respects, those in the bankruptcy arena will tell you the Lehman bankruptcy, to some extent, worked as it should have worked. That is that is his take on financial history, and that is the thinking that is now powering the majority party uh, <laughs> approach to financial regulation. Which you think is crazy, and I'm just going to say is actually kind of in line with what I said earlier, which is that so long as you don't have a major macro crisis raging around you, um, having a relatively clean bankruptcy where the whole thing just gets taken over by Barclays or whatever is okay. The problem with the Lehman bankruptcy was not the Lehman bankruptcy. The problem with the Lehman bankruptcy was the fact that it happened in the context of a global crisis and it had a whole bunch of contagion. But with, that's a, another segment. Um, I need to come up with my <laughs> I tried to see as loudly as the mic could. <laughs> Breathe deeply. and <laughs> Go on, Felix. Um, my number is, is another little... Uh, Stock market capitalization number. We've had a few of these over the weeks, and they're always kind of fun. It's $187 billion, um, which is the market capitalization of Taiwan Semiconductor. Taiwan Semiconductor is now the biggest chip maker in the world. It is a higher market cap than Intel. Huh. Intel's market cap is $172 billion. And it's quietly and weirdly like the chip making universe has been completely transformed over the past couple of years and um by mobile right and by mobile and also just by a bunch of m&a activity which has quietly been happening and intel which is always the 800 pound gorilla in the room is no longer the world's biggest chip maker and i just thought that was interesting that is not as interesting as cap structure <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Anna. So next <laughs> next week we are going to talk about um, – no, we are not going to talk about Lehman Bankruptcy. Next week we are going to talk about scams. It's going to be a fun show next week. Um, in the meantime, you have a whole week to listen to I Have to Ask, which is another Slate podcast, which is hosted by Isaac Chodner, and it comes out every Thursday, and he has deep dive interviews with what it says here, notable folks. Notable folks means Chuck Schumer, Andrew Sullivan, Ashley Parker, novelist George Saunders. You could start with Chris Hayes. I don't know. He's interviewed a bunch of people or Pamela Paul from the New York Times Book Review. And check out his show at slate.com slash ask. I'm, I'm going to do a little extra plug because Isaac is truly one of the best interviewers going right now in media. He, his one-on-one his -on -one interviews are absolutely special and he's excellent at getting people to say things they probably shouldn't. So go listen. It'll be worth your time. Okay. So I have to ask Isaac Chodner, check that one out. Stay with us by subscribing using the little subscribe button in whatever app you're listening to this show. Keep the emails coming, slatemoney at slate.com, as various listeners will attest. Um, there's a whole weird email back channel, which is cropping up around Slate Money, um, and it can be quite fun. Um, Dan Schrader will even sometimes weigh in himself. Um, but in any case, many thanks to him for producing this show, and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Day, day.
round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.